John chapter 19. And as you know, we're getting into the whole crucifixion of Jesus here. And again, this time of year, it's interesting how this lines up. I think it lined up another time like this when we went through the gospel of Mark. We were getting into the whole crucifixion right at the beginning of December. And so it's interesting how this is lined up that way too. But again, it's a great reminder for us of why Jesus came, right? We talk about Jesus' birth at Christmas. It's so joyous and wonderful. The angels are singing and we got baby Jesus. It's so great. But sometimes we leave it there and we forget to see and contemplate why Jesus came. I mean, he came, he was born a, a very humble means, but he died an even more humble death. And the whole purpose for him coming to this world was for this moment right here that we're looking at here in John chapter 19. And picking up in verse 17, the whole aspect of, of his crucifixion, coming to the cross. This is why Jesus came to this world. And so last week, we talked about um, Pilate and Jesus coming before Pilate on uh, a um, couple of different trials there as Pilate was viewing Jesus, as the Jews were looking to have Rome partner with them to bring that execution order to Jesus. And Pilate's looking at Jesus. And, and again, everything he's going through and looking at, he's realizing that this man is, is innocent. Pilate would say, I find no guilt in this man. And so Pilate eventually just, you know, succumbs to the Jews' demand, hands Jesus over to be crucified. And so we read here in verse 17 where we pick it up here today. And he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek and Latin. Let me just stop right there. So again, you know, the Bible doesn't go into a lot of detail over a crucifixion. All it says is that he was led to Calvary where they crucified him. I mean, that's kind of what we read in the Gospels. We don't get into the specifics, but understand, and we're not going to get into a lot of specifics today. We got into some last week when we talked about just even the scourging that Jesus um, bore under Pilate and, and the, the whipping and the beating that Jesus took for us. And I think we sometimes skip over these things. We fail to see the magnitude of sin because Jesus was, was suffering and, and dying uh, an agonizing death because it's a picture of what sin does. Sin's only purpose is to come and to, to destroy and lead to death. And you see, Jesus took all that. He took the, 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 the punishment of sin. He took the, the weight of sin. He took it all for you and for me. And sometimes we just gloss over these things. We read he was crucified, okay. He was scourged, okay. But understand that, that the Romans invented crucifixion to be the most agonizing form of death. It was torturous. It, it wasn't, and it wasn't that, that Jesus just appears on earth. And he's like, hey guys, I can handle this. I'm God. This is no big deal. He comes as fully God, but fully man. And he's experiencing everything that comes along with crucifixion and the pain and the weight of it all because he's bearing literally the sin of the world for you and for me. But first of all, we read here in verse 17 that he bearing his cross. Think about that even. Just the Romans would have the, 
the, the criminals, again, beaten as we saw last week with a, a whip that would just tear into the back and they would be outstretched and the skin would just begin to be laid bare. I mean, Jesus has suffered much already to, to where some people would just, uh, again, they would die just under the, the weight of this, you know, beating that would happen before the cross even. So now Jesus with his back just bloodied and, and bare, he's carrying his cross now. Carrying his cross to this place uh, called the Skull Golgotha. And I think about that and I go, man, just that in itself, the, the stuff that Jesus went through for you and for me. And yet he tells us all in Luke 9, 23, he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him take up his cross daily and, and follow me. Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And I think about that and I go, Jesus has asked us to do that, to follow him, to say, I, I'm willing to lay it all down. But understand that Jesus is the model of this for us. Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he himself hasn't done for us already. When he says, take up your cross, deny yourself and, and follow me, he's, he's saying that because he himself has, has done that. He's laid his life down fully. He's taken up his cross as we read here. He's bearing his cross for us. He's bearing the sin of the world, the judgment of God in our place. And so when he says, take up your cross, he's saying, do it because I've done this for you. And it's in the place where we are willing to bear our cross to deny ourselves that we're ultimately going to find life because that's what Jesus is securing for us here through the cross. Jesus isn't saying, give all this up so that you can really show, you know, your worth by how much you suffer. No, he's saying, do this because this is where you're going to find life and joy when you give it up and you experience life that I'm giving you because I ultimately bore the cross for you. So it just simply says in verse 18 that, that they crucified him. And, and that place was the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Now that's interesting because, you know, the site of Golgotha has traditionally been known as the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is there on this map here, you see kind of to the east of the temple, or sorry, to... That's not the east there. It's to the west of the temple there. Um, Golgotha, the traditional location, is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And so a lot of people believe that's there. And you go to Israel today and people are flocking to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and they're kissing this stone there and getting diseases and stuff because that's what happens when you are doing that. Not, not pleasant. But I don't believe that's the traditional place. I believe that as many have come to see that it's very likely... Gordon's Calvary up to the north of the temple there. Now, when a person was executed there by the Romans, they would do so outside the city walls. This meets those requirements because this place is outside the city walls, as you can see there. And there's also a garden right there, which a garden from antiquity, which we read later on in, in chapter 19 that there was a garden near the place where he was crucified. And so I believe very well likely could be that place. Now, it's interesting because... This area there is the highest point, Mount Moriah there. Uh, and so when you look at this, this topographical kind of look here, you see Golgotha up top. And that's the highest point of Mount Moriah, this, this whole area here. It's interesting because Abraham, remember, Abraham was called to take his son. God says in Genesis 22, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and, and sacrifice him. So Abraham's taking him up and... It was like a three days journey. For those three days, Abraham was viewing his son as though he were dead. But just as the moment he's ready to thrust in his spear, as he goes up to the top of Mount Moriah, that angel of the Lord stops him. And what does he say? 
No, God will provide. And it says in your, in your translation, most likely, God will provide for himself the lamb. But really, that word for is not in the original. In other words, it could read, God will provide himself the lamb as a sacrifice. See, right there on that spot, Mount Moriah, most likely is where Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son Isaac as a picture of what God would ultimately do there on that same spot in giving his son Jesus to die on a cross for, for you and for me. It's interesting, just in kind of the measurements there, whether or not you can look into this yourself, but from what I've seen, is that that measurement there at Golgotha is 777 meters above sea level. That's kind of interesting. Maybe significant, maybe not, but that's kind of cool. So Golgotha literally reads in, in Aramaic, place of the skull, as it's known here in verse uh, 17. They took him to the place of a skull, and we get the word Calvary from the Latin translation of Calvary. So if you've, you know, wonder why we're called Calvary Chapel, that's just, again, Calvary, the place where Jesus was crucified, right? Uh, it, it literally means as you take Calvary in the Greek, cranium, where we get our word skull. So we could, you know, you could call us Skull Chapel if you want, just for short. If you don't like, if people are confusing with Calgary Chapel or Calvary Chapel, like we're riding on horses, you can just say Skull Chapel if you want. That works too, so. No, you don't need to do that. But when you go to, to Gordon's Calvary, as I showed you that map up above there, it's interesting because as you sit there, you can see this hillside, which has the design of a, a skull in it. Whether or not that was in reference to what was going on in Jesus' day, we don't know. But for those of you that have been to Israel, we get to sit right there at, at, at Gordon's Calvary, Gordon's tomb, and we get to sit and have a devotion just looking right out over this place right here. So sweet. And there's still room for those of you that want to come to Israel because I know you want to not take my word for it, but see it for yourself. And so you get to see that. That would be so awesome. So Israel, coming up in March if you want to come and see these places for yourself. It's so sweet. Those of you that have been there, what a sweet time sitting there at the garden tomb and just having devotion and worship. Eh? Those, those of you that have been, isn't that sweet? Incredible. So tell everybody else not to miss out on that. All right. So here we are now. It's a place of a skull. And so it could be that a, a familiar place of execution. Maybe it was called place of a skull because, again, a lot of people were executed there. These were the remains, perhaps, that were there or, or, or a picture kind of of a skull right in the, in the side of the hill. And so either way, it tells us that Jesus was taken and he was crucified between two criminals. And I find that so interesting that Jesus takes his place among the guilty. It tells us in Isaiah, and this is all prophesied, Isaiah 53, verse 12, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So here comes Jesus now, the most innocent of all people. He takes his place among the guilty so that we could now take our place with him and be made righteous. Because here at Calvary, there's this great exchange that takes place. Jesus takes all of our guilt and our sin and he exchanges it for his righteousness. He stands in our place so that we could one day stand in his place by faith in him and be forgiven and have life in him. He doesn't say, oh no, I need to be sentenced over here, executed over here. Don't, don't put me next to these people. He says, no, put me right in the midst of them, right in between them because that's what I'm coming to do is to identify myself with all of these people so that they could find life in me and be identified now with me. Jesus takes his place between these two guilty. Just as we all need to recognize our guilt and our need 
for Jesus in these things. Because that was the, the same place we were in. You can look at these two and go, yeah, these guys really needed your help. No, we're all in that boat. We were all guilty apart from faith in Jesus. You might think you're a good person and, and, and everything's rolling along just fine. But man, you're, you're guilty simply by being born into this world. In that human race. Because Adam and Eve sinned. And it's been transferred to us. And you might think that's unfair. But just as Jesus allowed sin to come in through one man, he allowed righteousness for all to come in through one man. Aren't you glad that you don't have to earn your way? Aren't you glad that Jesus allows one man to to pay the price and the penalty for our sin that we might be made righteous through one man? So you might go, oh, that's not fair. That sin comes in the world through, well, Jesus allowed it that way so that one man could redeem us all. Jesus came and did that for us. Reading on here in verse 19, again, it says, and I know I read this already, but let me read it again. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now, something really disturbed the Jews here when they see this epitaph that Pilate's writing out here and they see him writing the king of the Jews, something really bothered them. It's perhaps because they're seeing what he's writing in Hebrew because John identifies that it's written in Hebrew first, right? And, And then Greek and Latin. So as they're reading this in Hebrew, there's something that stands out to them that caused them to go all the more, no, don't say that. Say that he said that he's the king of the Jews. Well, the Jews now, they would have been very familiar with and, and and even you know sensitive to acrostics which they would have seen in their scriptures many times now here's what an acrostic is an acrostic is a composition in verse in which the first maybe sometimes the last letters of the line read in order to form a name a sentence or or a title so you take the first letter of each word as it's being written maybe at the beginning of each line and and it forms another word well as as Pilate is writing this the king of the jews notice here He's writing these words out and reading from right to left. Yeshua, Hanazareh, Vimelech, Hayahudim. And so what it's saying is they take the first letter of each word. It's spelling out Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H. The very proper name of God, Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah, Yehovah. What they're perhaps seeing here is that as Paul is writing this out, they're going, no, don't claim that he is Yahweh. Say that he said only that he is that. Perhaps they're seeing this and, and that's what this epitaph would be reading out to them as they're catching this acrostic being written out. So amazing that, that God takes a, a Roman ruler to put the holy name of God on the cross to show that Jesus Christ was indeed the chosen Lamb of God, the only one worthy to die in our place as not just the Son of Man, but the very Son of God, very God himself. See, Jesus, being fully man yet fully God, came to save us. And it's written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. This is what every person from every walk of life would see and understand the significance of this. See, no matter your your background, your nationality, Jesus came to save you. He is the Savior of the world. And I love that Pilate just now, he says, he just silences them. What I've written, I've written. See, Pilate was a wishy-washy guy. He's trying to find a way out from the Jews to not have to be brought into this fight in a sense. Because remember, as we saw last week, Pilate's been on thin ice with Rome. 
He's not wanting to bring any more kind of riot or excitement. So he's just trying to appease the Jews. But now he's like, yeah, I'm done. I'm done with this. This is an innocent man. I've gone too far. What I've written, I've written. He's willing to take a stand now, although you wish he would have been willing to take that stand much sooner. Well, reading along here in verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. So this is interesting. So they divide up his clothes but then when they get to the tunic they see that this is one seamless piece and they don't want to tear it. So they cast lots to divide it. it it's a reminder of Jesus as our great high priest as the high priest were to wear this seamless tunic that wouldn't be torn. It tells us in Exodus 28, Verse 31 to 32, for some context here. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening, like the opening in a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. So Jesus has his tunic now that's not to be torn. The Latin word for priest is pontifex, which simply means bridge builder. See, the priest was to be that bridge between man and God. And here comes Jesus now as the only way for man to come and approach God. The only way. And you've seen that, that you know, bridge illustration where you got man on one side, God on the other, and we're separated by this great chasm of sin. How do we deal with that? Well, the cross answers that problem and question for us. Because when you bring the cross into play now, that is that bridge. Jesus came to the cross so that he could bring man to God. So that we could be reconciled. That's exactly what the cross does for us. Where guilt is taken care of. Our sins are atoned. Not just covered, but they're removed. Forgiven. So that we can walk in newness of life now. With God through Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest that bridges the gap before God. Now, Throughout this passage, we're going to see, you know, a lot of Old Testament scriptures being fulfilled. Fulfillment of prophecy is one of the greatest proofs for the, the validity, the authority, the accuracy of God's word. A lot of people will love to question the Bible. But all you have to do is go, look at what the Bible has done. Look at every prophecy that's been fulfilled in scripture. Now, there's some that will be, you know, critics of this and some that have come along and try to say, well, listen. Now, nah, the only reason those things were, were fulfilled is because this man, Jesus, came and he knew what these Old Testament prophecies were. So he came deliberately to fulfill these things specifically so that he could say, look at how good the Bible is. And so it was kind of a, a purposeful sort of agenda that Jesus did in fulfilling the scriptures. But yet, when you look at this one here, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers are sitting here saying, let's divide up his clothes. Let's make it equal parts. Oh, but wait, the tunic? That's ah, not, it's, it's one piece. Let's not, let's not tear it. Let's divide it up. They're fulfilling scripture. You think the soldiers are sitting here saying, you know what? Let's figure out what the Bible has to say about Jesus. Let's do our best to make sure all these scriptures get fulfilled. No, they're Roman soldiers. They don't care about that. They're going to go out of their way to try to disprove who Jesus is. And yet, just by the sovereign, invisible hand of God that's leading these people, they're unwill, un, unknowingly fulfilling scripture. 
This isn't some agenda uh, of Jesus to say, I got to make sure I fulfill the scriptures. I can't go to the cross yet. There's still a couple I need to check off the list. No, everything is being done accurately because this is God's word being fulfilled and God is in control. And so we see the validity of scripture, even with these soldiers here that are willing to, to, to follow through in these things, unknowingly fulfilling scripture. And then in verse 25, we read this. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Now think about this. Here's Jesus. I mean, he's at the moment of most agony, discomfort in his life. And yet he's caring for these personal relationships that he has here. Amazing. Now, why would he say to Mary, behold your son? Because Mary has other sons besides Jesus. Jesus has half-brothers. So, why is this happening? Well, because from what we know, his half-brothers were not believers in Jesus. In fact, they're not here at the scene. Joseph isn't here at the scene. It's very possible that they have been just completely dismissive of Jesus. Perhaps they're embarrassed. They don't want anything to do with him. Remember when he's ready to go to the feast, they're all kind of mocking him. Oh, why don't you now show who you are, who you claim to be, right? Go ahead, show the world who you are. Like mocking Jesus. They didn't believe. And so they're not here. And yet what Jesus does, he says, I want to be sure that Mary, you're taking care of. And John, you're taking care of. You see, what happens at the cross is that new relationships are formed. There's a greater unity that takes place with those that are part of that family of faith in Jesus. And Jesus is bringing these people together now because I believe that there's going to be a greater comfort, a greater blessing that's going to happen now for Mary and, and John. Mary's not going to have to go back to a, a home that's critical or mocking. She's going to have John now. That's coming and bringing comfort and encouragement to her. Oh, Mary, yeah, this is awful to see. But guess what? He's the son of God. And he's going to rise again. And, and it's in him that we're going to have, like, like, like they're able to come and bring just that encouragement and comfort to one another. And you see, that's what, what the Lord, I believe, has for each of us. Because when we come together at the cross, we see that, man, we're all family. We're together in this. You look around this room and you get to say, Oh, this is so cool. This, this is my brothers and my sisters in the Lord. We're family. And I think there's greater, there's greater ties of, uh, of that family unit that happen among believers than even our natural family units. Because, again, we have that common heart to serve the Lord, to bring encouragement and blessing. Aren't you, aren't you? Don't you find that when sometimes you're with your natural family who are unbelievers, you're just like, Lord, get me through this. But when you're with the family, God is like, Lord, thank you for my brothers and my sisters here. I'm not saying don't, you know, push away your family. No, go and be a light in your family that don't believe. Definitely love upon them. But there's something so sweet that happens among the family, God, where we get to come alongside in support and encouragement. When people are weak, we get, to, we get to encourage and pick them up. When people are mourning, we get to comfort them. We get to keep pointing them to Jesus, you see. There's such a blessing that takes place here. And Jesus is securing that here with with Mary and John here. And Mary, no doubt, was going to be at, at, experiencing this. I mean, think about this. This is, uh, don't, don't dismiss this, that, that this is a, 
a person that Mary kind of raised, you know? I mean, yes, he's Jesus. But I mean, she's the one that's raising him in, in, her, in his childhood, spending you know, her whole life with him. And remember that word that came to Mary early on at Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2, verse 34 to 35. Then, then Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which, should, which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So no doubt Mary's experiencing what Simeon had said that a, soul is going to pierce, or a sword is going to pierce through your own soul. She's experiencing that this day, but Jesus says, John, take care of her. Mary, take care of John. Bless one another. Comfort one another. I think that's so awesome that Jesus is concerned with these relational dynamics. And he prayed that all through John 17, right? Make them one as you and I are one, Father. And that's what he does through the cross. He brings us together. Oh, man, we all come from different experiences, backgrounds, uh, our, our, our history, but yet the, the, the ground is just level at the cross. We come together as one in Jesus. Well, after this, verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. Now that process of dying on a cross, again, like I said, exerted a great physical toll to the human body. People would become greatly fatigued being on the cross. There would be great dehydration that would take place. And so Jesus is sitting on the cross here and he's experiencing the, the physical toll that this has taken. And, and he cries out, I thirst. Cries out, I thirst here. Again, it's fulfilling what the scripture said in Psalm 22, verse 15, Psalm 69, verse 21. And so... He receives a drink, and I, I believe he receives it just so that he can utter those last, you know, words there from the cross, which are significant. We'll get to that in a little bit here. But before we do, it's interesting that what's used to offer up that drink to him, it's a hyssop, which links us to another significant event in Israel's history, because it links us to the Passover. We read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, and he shall take a bunch of hyssop, Dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So understand there that this hyssop links the cross to the Passover. Where again at Passover blood was applied for their ransom, for their deliverance. But the cross now, again, where the blood of Jesus was applied for our great deliverance. Deliverance from sin, deliverance from death into life, into freedom in Jesus. Now, the prophecies concerning Jesus, you know, they're all being fulfilled by him. And it's incredible to see how these things all, hundreds of years before they happened, were, were spoken about. They were written. These are not broad, general prophecies. These were very exact. Very exact here so it goes to show again how divinely inspired the word of god is and that jesus truly is the messiah the anointed one sent of god and then it tells in verse 30 verse 30 it says this so when jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished and bowing his head he gave up his spirit 
So Jesus proclaims now from the cross, after he receives his strength to be able to speak, he says, it is finished. Jesus didn't say, oh boy, I am finished. He said, it is finished. It is finished. What is finished? The very work needed for salvation. In other words, you need to grasp this here today. My friends, the work is done. The work is done. Are you striving to try to earn your way with God? Are you striving to try to be good enough to go to heaven? Because Jesus said, it's finished, the work is done. In fact, he uses a word here. It's one word in the Greek, it's the word tetelestai. Tetelestai, which simply means it's a, a, a term used for tax receipts to indicate paid in full. It's paid in full. See, we all had a debt that needed to be paid. A debt of sin that, again, what's the wages of sin? It's death. Man, that's a, a debt I don't want to have to pay. But Jesus came and paid it for us. And so he says now, Tetelestai, guys, it's paid in full. Jesus has done it all for us. I can't work for or earn my salvation. Jesus has done it. We're saved simply by putting our trust in that finished work that Jesus did on the cross to bring us into a relationship with God. It's amazing. It's so good. Now let's say, let's say I were to write you a check for $100,000 to clear all your debts. Now if you ever see a check from me for that amount, don't cash it. Just... Let's just dream for a little bit here together, okay? But if I were to give you a check and say, I want you just to wipe out all your debts. Now, you can take that check and you can drop it in your pocket. You can put it in your purse, put it in your night table. And you can sit there and look at that check and go, oh, that's so awesome. Look at what Brent did. But that's not going to do anything for you unless you go and cash it. And you pay your debt. You see, there's a lot of people that have looked at the cross. They've looked at what Jesus has done. And they've been quick to say, thank you, Jesus. But they haven't appropriated that to themselves. They haven't applied that. They haven't cashed in on what Jesus did for them. But what does that mean? How do you you cash in? You simply come to Jesus admitting your need for him. You need to repent of your sin, which is simply turning from going your way, saying, Jesus, I'm going to go your way, and I want to receive your salvation for my life. Oh, that's not a work. That's not something you do to earn it. It's just you saying, I want to appropriate this now to my life. I want to cash that check, Jesus. I don't want to just believe. I want to receive. And you just simply need to call out, admitting your sin and your need for a Savior. And you say, Jesus, come and be my Lord and my Savior. And when you do, and your debt, it's paid in full. All your sins that you've been carrying around, the slate is wiped clean, forgiven. You're now a new creation in Christ. That's what it means when Jesus says it's paid in full. Have you applied that and appropriate that to your life? Are you walking that newness of sin? Or newness of life, I should say. Or are you still carrying that sin around going, oh man, I just have so much guilt, so much weight. And, and, and one day I hope, man, that's going to be freed from me. A lot of Christians that live. You know, when I talk to a lot of people that claim to be Christians, you know, it seems to always come back to this idea that, well, I'm, I'm trying to be good enough. I'm trying to do enough. It keeps coming back to this area of trying to earn their way to heaven. Instead of simply resting in the fact that Jesus has done the work for us. 
Are you resting in that? See, it says here in verse 30 that after Jesus said, it is finished, he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. Now we get that picture oftentimes that Jesus bowed his head like it's down and it's, he's out. But a lot of scholars think that when Jesus said, or when it says that he bowed his head, it's so Jesus put his head back and, and took that form of rest. I think that's a sweet picture. Because that's what was accomplished for us, is our rest in Jesus. He rested knowing that the work is done. What did God do when the work was done? He rested. Jesus now, it is finished. And he bowed his head, perhaps putting his head back in that position of rest to say, my friends, the work is done. It's paid in full. Are you taking that position of rest in Jesus? Are you still striving, trying to make it happen, trying to be good enough? Or are you saying, oh, I know I'll never get there, but it's done in Jesus. So I place my life in you and in your hands, Jesus. I'm resting in you and in your finished work for me. That's what Jesus accomplished for us here. Let's continue on here, verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Let me just stop right there. So remember here, it's a preparation day. The, the Jewish day began and end at sundown, different than our, the way that we treat our day, basically. So Passover was on the 14th day of Nisan from uh, sundown at the Last Supper until sundown when they, they buried Jesus Christ. Then at sunset, it became the 15th of Nisan, which began now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which made that now a, a Sabbath, a, a special Sabbath day. So remember, the Feast of Unleavened Bread came right after Passover. So this whole week festival was taking place now. They celebrated Passover, but now a new Sabbath is coming because it's the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which they celebrated for the whole week, which oftentimes, like I said last week, just began to be identified just holy as, as Passover, the whole thing, right? So here's what's taking place. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the Sabbath, the day when they could do no work. So although, according to the calendar, it was technically still Passover because they'd celebrated the night before, the Jews could use the daytime now of the 14th as a preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would begin now at twilight, which is what they're doing here now. So they want to get prepared. And the Jews now knew that According to their law, Deuteronomy 21, 23, uh, a man should not remain, you know, hanging basically overnight. So they wanted to make sure that he was taken out, especially with the Sabbath approaching. They wanted to make sure that Jesus wasn't there. So the soldiers now, to again help with the Jews' view of their law, that they would come alongside and break the legs of these criminals. Now, what would happen at crucifixion? Like I said earlier, the Romans invented this to be the most painful, agonizing gruesome way to die they would be nailed with their feet together their legs kind of twisted in an uncomfortable way with their arms stretched out where it would be very hard to get air in your in your lungs what you'd have to do is you'd have to push up with those nails in your feet and your nails in your in your wrists and you have to push up just to get a breath of air in your lungs you know what it's like sometimes when you just can't they really get a proper breath it's it's a struggle it's a fight well jesus and all those being crucified would have to push up on this here now which would create, again, just an agonizing amount of pain. 
just to get breath in your lungs. So the soldiers would come along. If they wanted to hasten the death, they would break the legs of these, of these criminals so that they could no longer push up on the cross and they would die by suffocation. Awful way to die. And so it tells us that when they came to Jesus, they recognized, they saw that he's already dead. He'd already given up his spirit, as we'll see a little bit later here. He's already surrendered his life. Nobody takes it from him. He gives it up of his own accord. And so they come to Jesus. And so just again, one soldier decides, well, I'm going to make sure this. He thrusts a spear in his side. Now, what's interesting is that the heart has a sac around it that when the heart ruptures, it fills with water and blood. So this spear would have pierced through his side into this sac around the heart and then out came that blood and water. Many people see this and view this in the way that Jesus literally died of a broken heart. Out of a broken heart for you and for me and for what sin does. But he came to pay the price for us. Blood and water also these cleansing agents. And the, the two are symbols of the two sacraments of the church. Which is baptism and communion. In baptism water is significant of the cleansing grace by which we're saved. We're put under water to show the putting down of the old self. And we come up. A new creation cleansed through Jesus. The blood is significant of showing the removal of sin at communion. We partake of that juice as a symbol of his blood to show Jesus, you have cleansed me now of my sin. Tells us in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to his riches and grace. So these two elements, blood and water, are flowing out of his side to reveal this, again, great, work that jesus has done for us augustus top lady fittingly wrote rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee let the water and the blood which thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure cleanse me from its guilt and power and that's what jesus has done for us verse 35 goes on to say and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe for these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled not one of his bones shall be broken and again another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced so again there are many that would love to dismiss this idea that jesus didn't really die there was really no resurrection because Jesus didn't really die. In fact, there on the cross, he just kind of fainted. It's this thing called the swoon theory where he just fainted. He went into this kind of, you know, uh, spell. And so when they took him off the cross and they brought him in, you know, it, it, he just resuscitated, came back to life. So there was really no resurrection because Jesus never really died. So there's this idea and, and people try to, you know, propagate this idea to dismiss what Jesus ultimately did. But see, these Roman soldiers, they're trained to know when a person was dead. They were trained in the art of killing, right? So when they come to Jesus, they know this guy's dead. But to be sure, let's thrust a spear through his side and outflowed that water and blood. They knew. And in fact, to let somebody off like this without assuring that they were dead would mean that the Romans now, it would be their head on the chopping block if they allowed something like this to continue on without facing their death penalty. So the Romans made sure, I'm not taking any chances on this because if I miss this one, it's me that's going to be killed. They wouldn't take any chances on this. Jesus died. See that clearly? And John testifies, listen, I'm telling you, I was there, I saw it. And I testified these things are true. 
That again, the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Jesus gave his life up. Not one bone was broken. But now in the second verse, it says that they shall look on him whom they pierced. It doesn't say that that scripture might be fulfilled. It just says, and the scriptures also say. Well, it doesn't say that that one's not fulfilled. Because that one's not yet fulfilled. It's going to come in a future day. Because this is a verse that's quoted in Zechariah 12 of Jesus' second coming. When he comes back and the Jewish nation looks up and they see, and they'll say, they will look on him whom they have pierced. That would be great mourning in the house of David. I believe it will be a great repentance. I believe it's what Paul wrote about in Romans 10 where he says all Israel will be saved in that day. It will be in that day when Jesus appears to them. Before he touches down on the Mount of Olives, he'll come and reveal himself to them and all of Israel will be saved in that day. It's at his second coming that this will happen. It's at the second coming that this verse ultimately will be fulfilled. Oh, it's fulfilled in part because yes, he was pierced. But this is spoken of, of when Israel says it. When they will have a great awakening in that day and they will see the one that they've rejected and realize he truly is our Messiah. And their faith will be put in him and they will be saved as Paul writes. That's exciting stuff right there. More to come. Jesus is on a cross. He dies. He rises again. But the story doesn't end there. There's more to come. Well, let's wrap up here. Verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. So here's Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was in the same category with the Pharisees where many of the Pharisees were these religious leaders who were the opposers of Jesus in his ministry. And and Joseph of Arimathea came to see and know that Jesus truly was the Messiah that they've been waiting for, the promised one. And so it tells us that that he, it says in verse 38, uh, took courage here. Um, Or sorry, where does it say that? Maybe it's another gospel. Um, it tells that he, he took courage now when he came into Pilate. And I, I'm excited for that because it's here now seeing what Jesus went through that Joseph is willing to say, I'm, I'm willing to stand up now for Jesus. Nicodemus comes alongside the same way. He's a, a member you know, of the Pharisees. Remember in John 3, he comes to Jesus at night because he doesn't want to be seen. But now Nicodemus, he was once... Walking in darkness is now ready to walk in the light and say, I'm willing to take a stand with Jesus. Maybe there's some of you that have had a hard time taking a stand for Jesus. There's been a lack of courage where you're like, I don't know if I'm willing to do this. Joseph of Arimathea and, and, and Nicodemus for that matter, I mean, they're laying it out on the line now. Because if anybody recognizes what they're doing, well, they might think, you're partnering with Rome. That's kind of a treasonous act. They would have been seen as betrayers of uh, of Israel or, or they would have just been excommunicated from their group they would have thought you're standing with Jesus no way you're, you're shunned now you can't you're not allowed to meet with us they'd be cut off from any kind of social system now I mean it was really giving up everything to take a stand like this but they saw something in Jesus now and I pray that we as we take this fresh look at the cross that the Lord works in us just a greater courage to say Jesus Help me to take a stand for you. 
Lord, you were willing to die for me. Help me now just to live for you. Because that's what Jesus has done for us through Calvary. So I'm giving you life. I've given you a reason to live. I've given you greater purpose and joy. May we be willing to take a stand for Jesus and have that courage to say, I, I want to live for you because Jesus, you gave it all up for me. So these two come and they take the body. And then it tells us in verse 41, Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. So here's where that ends now. They take Jesus, they lay him in a tomb where we know he'll be for three days. And we know that's not the end. You'll have to come back next week to hear how this wraps up. But you all know the story, I, I hope and I pray. But um, there's, it's interesting because in the Gospel of John, there's seven I am statements, right? Where Jesus proclaims, I am, and, and, and fill in the blank, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, resurrection of life. I am statements. There's seven signs that John records in the Gospel of John to reveal these miracles of Jesus, that he is indeed the Son of God. But it's interesting because at the cross, as you bring in all the Gospels, you see that there's seven statements uttered by Jesus at the cross. Seven sayings of the cross they're known as. And I want to quickly just run through them. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and get themselves ready here as we're just going to close with a time of worship. But that first statement uttered at the cross was, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Luke 23, or sorry, Luke 22, verse 34. Amazing that Jesus was sitting here now looking at those mocking him sentencing him unjustly and yet what's the heart of jesus forgive them he is there at the cross full of love and grace and mercy for all those that have turned against him amazing forgive them father second statement luke 23 verse 43 assuredly i say to you today you'll be with me in paradise that speaks to the idea that it is only through faith that we can come into relationship and eternity with Jesus. If it were based on other things like baptism, well, then Jesus could not have said that to this man. There's some people that believe, oh, you need to be baptized to be saved. Well, if that was the case, Jesus would have said, hey, bud, sorry, can't help you. A little bit too late, man. All right? Can't get down and baptize you. Sorry. No, today you'll be with me in paradise because the only thing that's required is faith in Jesus. And this man exemplified that. Thankful for that third statement. It's here in John. We read already John 19, verse 26, 27. Woman, behold your son. And then to John, behold your mother. Fourth statement. Eli, Eli, Shabbatani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 46. And we think about that and we go, oh, why God did you turn on Jesus? Why? Why did he pray or say, why have you forsaken me? This is his most critical hour. Why? Understand, because this is the moment that sin is being judged upon Jesus. The sin of the world. Where sin cannot be in the presence of God. It's the first and only time that Jesus has experienced the separation of the Father. To where Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus was bearing the very sin upon him. And he bore that upon himself so that you would not have to experience that. So that you would not have to experience separation from the Father. Understand, as, as, as terrible as hell sounds... And it does sound pretty terrible. The, the, the worst thing that you're going to experience in hell is this idea of, I, I've been separated from the Father. Separated from really knowing and experiencing the love of the Father. 
That's something I wish upon nobody. But Jesus has secured that for you through your faith in him. He was willing to be separated from the Father so that you would not have to be. Have you been reconciled to God? Have you confessed your sin and received that salvation of Jesus that he has accomplished for you here through his work at Calvary? Sixth statement, I thirst, John 19. Sixth statement, it is finished. And then the last statement Jesus says after it is finished was, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23, verse 46. That's the definition of death, the separation of the spirit from the body. And Jesus willingly gave it up because the work was done. Have we been willing to give up our life? Have we been willing to lay it down? That's the one thing that I think prevents a lot of people from just going all in because they're saying, no, I still got a lot of living I want to do. I still got a lot of things I want to hold on to. But understand what happens when we hold on is we just bring more agony to ourselves. If Jesus wasn't willing to say, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit, it would have just meant more agony for him. Knowing that the work was done, he enters in his rest and he gives it up. And it's when we are willing to give up and say, Jesus, I give it all over to you, that you're going to then experience the rest, the life, the joy that Jesus has for you. You might be thinking, oh, I want to hold on to this a little bit longer. Well, you can do so. But you're just adding more grief and agony to yourself. Give it up so that you can experience true life. The blessed life, the abundant life that Jesus says in John 10, he came to give to the world. Jesus gave it up. Are you willing to do so? So that you might find life in him. If you're here today and you don't know this life, and maybe you've been going through your life holding on, not willing to give up, not realizing that the work truly is done, that there's nothing more you need to do, and you've been trying to do it your way, if you're here today and you're ready to say, I want to go God's way. I want to receive this life that Jesus has for me. I encourage you and I invite you. Simply come to Jesus. Say, I admit I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. Come in and be my savior. I want your life, the better life. Would you pray that today if that's you? Don't put it off any longer because Jesus did this so that you would not have to go through it. And so that you could find life in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here today. And we thank you for the work that you have done for us. You did it all. The work is done now. And we just simply need to receive it. I pray for those here today that maybe have been fighting it. And have not received it. That they've not appropriated these things to themselves. And they thought that there's something they need to do. I pray that they would stop striving. Stop trying to do the work. And that they would rest in the finished work. I pray that you would lead them into salvation. That forgiveness of sin. That they would just simply call out to you right now. Say, Jesus, come and be my Lord and my Savior. I give you my life because I want your life. The better life. That life of righteousness, that life of fruit, that life of joy and blessing. Lord, lead people in that and lead us to go out into the world with courage and might to to stand for you and to make you known in our lives so that others can come into that life that you have for them. Thank you that you've done this for us, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. I'm going to invite our prayer teams to come and make themselves available in the front. If we can pray for you, we'd love to do so. If you're just needing more answers even about 
this salvation of Jesus. Come and talk to these people. They'd love to share with you. We're just going to close with a song here. Let's just take time to reflect on this great work of Jesus and give him praise for it.